Valley Bible Church, it is great to be with you here this morning. Excited that you are joining us on our live stream uh, as we walk through the time that we're in right now. Just really want to speak, really maybe to a question that you 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 came into your living room staring at the screen with this question in your head, or, or maybe you're just on your laptop right now, or you're on your phone, or wherever you're at, and this question is just rattling in your mind. I think if we're all honest. There's one big question that is just, just grabbing us, that's making us anxious, that is hurting us, that is causing us, honestly, just to feel slower about our day. It, it's almost like we're wearing concrete shoes. We just can't move forward because this question is just burdening us. And the question is, why? Why, God? Why do you allow suffering? God, why do you allow pain? God, why am I hurting God, why is there chaos? God, why is the situation like it is? God, maybe the question is, God, are you even there? I mean, I mean, if you were there, all of this would not be happening. I know for myself, those are the questions I ask. Why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow pain? God, what good can you get out of this? Anytime I'm in a trial, that's the question I ask. God, why? Why now? Why this? I don't understand. You know, pain, situations that we're in right now, pain, suffering, sorrow, tragedy, pain is the reason many don't believe. I would say the number one obstacle to belief is pain. But if we're honest, even those of us who do believe, it's the number one burden we bear, and that is pain. God, how can I continue to walk and follow you while I'm feeling this pain? So what I want to do over the next three weeks is I want to dive just headfirst in this. Just headfirst in this. I just want to jump in and, and, and just see, does the Bible have to say anything about our pain? Can, can we look to this as a book that can answer those questions for us that we're all asking that the world is asking? See, the problem of pain, the problem of suffering, the problem of, 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 of tragedy really kind of has three ingredients to it. These three ingredients, you put these three things together, and then you just get a mess. Those three things are this. God is great. God is great, meaning God is in control. God, God has authority over all things. God is great, meaning God has power. God has power. He can do anything he wants to do. Nothing can stop him. Nothing can pull him away. He is a God of all ability. Also, God's knowledge. God is perfectly aware of the past, perfectly aware of the present, and perfectly aware of the future. He knows all things. God is great. That's one ingredient. God is great. The second one is God is good. What does that mean? God is good means he, he's not evil. He's, he's morally pure. His intentions are good. His motives are good. He never steps out of line. He never steps out of character. And there's nothing in him that wants something bad. God is good. God is great. But then we have pain. But then there's pain. But then I hurt. There's pain in the sense of people commit crimes. Right? There's evil. Crimes are committed by us. Crimes are committed against us. There's just suffering, natural suffering, catastrophe. Sometimes nature is not our friend. There's earthquakes. There's hurricanes. There's, there's diseases. There's viruses. And these three ingredients put together make a sour drink. They don't work. How can God be great, God be good, and there be pain? This is why many of us don't believe, and this is why many of us struggle to believe at times, is because this problem of pain. 
So my question this morning is, how do we solve that? How do we solve that problem? Here's what we often do. We try to solve it by subtraction. I got to take one of these out. Now, what we don't do is we don't take away pain. I mean, everybody is convinced that there's pain, there's suffering, there's sorrow, there's hurt, there's heartache. Oftentimes, what we take is we take God's greatness out. We say, okay, God is good. He doesn't want pain to happen, but maybe God just can't stop it. Maybe God just didn't see it coming. Maybe God just doesn't have that authority. Maybe something is limiting him. So we subtract the greatness of God. We weaken God to solve the problem. Here's what I think you're going to find this morning. And it's the big idea of this morning. If you're going to write down one sentence, I want you to write down this one sentence. It's our big idea. I like to give big ideas every time I speak because it helps me understand. I think it helps you understand too. The big idea is the answer to that question. How do we solve the problem of pain? The big idea is this. The problem of pain is not solved or is solved by addition and not subtraction. The problem of pain is solved by addition and not subtraction. We don't take away one of these things. We must add something. But first, let's go to the scriptures and let's see we should not take away the greatness of God in times of pain. We're not going to find comfort there. Weakening God won't help us. Here's what I want to do. I want to look at two stories in the scriptures. Two stories of great pain. I would say probably the most painful stories in all of the Bible. And we're going to ask a very simple question. Does the Bible subtract God's greatness in this time of pain? Does it take it away? Does it kind of lessen who God is? Does it make him weak? Does it ignore his greatness? And I think what you're going to find is in both of these stories, the greatness of God is emphasized. The greatness of God is is highlighted. It's lifted up. It's made a point of focus. It's not ignored. It's not subtracted. It's not any of that. Let's jump to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 37. The first story we're going to do is the story of Joseph. And the story of Joseph actually starts off pretty, pretty good. His story takes a majority of the book of Genesis from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. And we're going to kind of get the bookends of that story. And remember, the question we're trying to ask ourselves is the greatness of God pulled away or subtraction or subtracted in his time of pain. So look with me. This is Genesis chapter 37. I'm going to read verse four or sorry, verse three. Verse three says this. Now, Israel loved Israel is uh, Joseph's father. Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because He was the son of his old age. Right now, you can already sense there's a problem. He's playing favorites. And Joseph is this favorite. He made him a robe of many colors. Now he wants to show this off. Joseph has got this robe, I'm sure, an item of pride for him. Guys, do you see what I got? Doesn't go well with his brothers. It says in verse 4, but when his brothers saw their father loved him more than All his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. They couldn't bring it to themselves to say anything nice to this guy. And you know what? Joseph didn't help out much at all. You you read on through the story, and Joseph starts to have these dreams. He has this great dream, and then he decides to put this dream to his brothers. Bad idea. First dream is this. There's these bundles of wheat. And, And Joseph has one of these bundles. And so his wheat is bundled up. And then all of his 11 brothers, they have their bundles. And all those bundles bow to his bundle. And he decides to say, hey, guys, guess what I dreamt? Bad idea. But he does it. He shares it. 
And he shares another dream. You know, I had another dream, guys. I was standing there and the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowed down to me. Guys, I think what that means is mom and dad are going to bow down to me and you guys are going to bow down to me. Wow, something not to share with your other brothers, but he does. This just breeds and and just fosters this hatred. So the brothers decide we're going to beat him up. But not like, hey, we're going to give him noogies or something like that. No, 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 no. It's, It's beyond that. They beat him up. They throw him in a well. They're about to kill him. They decide, no, no, let's retreat from that. And they decide, let's, they're capitalists, let's, let's make some money off this guy, right? So they sell him. They sell him into slavery. He gets sold into slavery, and then he's sold into slavery actually again. He's in a place of Egypt now. Things seem to be going well. He's doing well as that slave. But then he's falsely accused by an adulterous woman who wants to commit sexual sin with him. He says no. She falsely accuses him. That situation sticks on him. It just holds on him. And because it holds on him, he goes to prison. Now he's in prison, but things go a little better. He gets promoted. He gets out of that. He gets actually a job where he's really second in charge of of Egypt. And through his wisdom, through his kind of organizational leadership, through the godly wisdom that he is given, through the abilities that God graces him with, he's able to save this nation from a great famine. And his brothers are actually a part of that rescue. His brothers come to him now. Can you imagine that? Now the brothers say, we thought you were dead. You were sold off here. Now they have to bow down to him to receive their grain. The dream comes true. Now we hear that story. It's a painful story. It's just a tragic story. Yes, it does end well. But at the very tail end of the book of Genesis, Joseph is going to say, guys, here's what I saw throughout this. And notice what he does. He doesn't just say, God was in charge of the good parts. No, he says, through the whole thing, God meant it for good. Let me show you this. Genesis chapter 50. I'm going to read verse 19. But Joseph said to them, this is after everything has concluded, do not fear, for I am I in the place of God. They're afraid that he's going he's gonna to hurt them now. Because now he, he, he's an official. He's got power. And he says, no, guys, I'm not in the place of God to judge you. Look at verse 20. This is remarkable the parallelism here. Look at the two ideas put right next to each other here. It says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it. Stop there. It. God meant it. What is he referring to? Everything the brothers did to me, my whole storyline, my whole trajectory. You meant this for evil. You were hoping to kill me. Then you were hoping to make gains on me. You're hoping to get a profit on me. You were hoping I would go away and never come back. But God was doing something else in all of that. Look what he says. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What is happening here? A remarkable kind of contrast between these two ideas. He's saying, everything that happened to me, you tried to hurt me. But everything that was happening to me, God was seeking to help a nation come out of a famine. God meant it for good. Notice the most painful story probably in the Old Testament. And the greatness of God is not subtracted, but the greatness of God is emphasized. God was behind this whole thing. Let's look at another story. We went from the, the most painful story I could pick out, I think, in the Old Testament. Let's look at the most painful story in all of Scripture. In the New Testament. It's the story of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to earth 
unlike Joseph, never did anything wrong. Never lied, never lusted, never sinned in any way. Never was angry in an appropriate way. Perfect. The God-man with us. And the God-man with us was on a mission. A mission to ransom many, to bring them back to God, to save them from their sin. And on this mission and in his ministry, as he was executing this plan designed by God the Father, he started to get opposition. The Roman authorities didn't like what he was doing. The Jewish authorities didn't like what he was doing. And so they plotted to kill him, to murder him. And they did. They murdered him on a cross. Now, that same event has another intent behind it. Because what they intended as murder, God intended as sacrifice. The same event, just like with Joseph, the same event, but with different intent. Look at this in Acts chapter 4. This is how the apostle, the followers of Jesus Christ, how they looked at the cross. And notice this balance, again, this parallelism that's working, this kind of contrast of working here. This is in Acts chapter 4, verse 27. It says this, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. So very clearly what we're talking about here is it's the culmination of the crucifixion. Uh, This is when Jesus was executed. They're set against him, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. So now we have two Roman authorities who are set against Jesus. Now look at another culprit in this crime, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So all of these players are involved. They're just like the brothers of Joseph. But look at this. To do whatever your hand, now he's speaking of God, your hand your plan had predestined to take place. Remarkable. What what do we learn just from these two passages? There's no way we can make the case that the way we solve the problem of evil is by extracting or taking away or subtracting the greatness of God. In fact, when the scriptures speak of pain, they heighten the idea of God's greatness. The, the worst of all events ever is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and that's the time when God's control, God's greatness, God's power, God's plan was at its, at its culminating work. So what does that mean? That means this. That means God stands behind all events, all events in our lives. Now, I think God stands behind those events differently when there's something. uh, It's a good event. God stands behind it, and he gets the good moral credit from that. When it's an evil event, yes, God is still behind it, but in a different way. He doesn't receive any of the evil credit, just like in the crucifixion of his son and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He doesn't receive the credit as murder, as, 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 as killing Jesus. He receives the credit of what? This is a sacrifice. This is an atonement. This is going to do something to to help the world. This is a substitutionary death. I'm going to give this gift so they'll receive forgiveness. God stands behind all events. Well, let's make this personal, right? I can't take a principle and apply it to you without applying it to myself. So let me give you my most painful event of my life. Most painful event of my life happened November 14th, 1996. November 14th, 1996, it was my dad's time to have me over. My parents got divorced when I was very young, and so he had partial custody, and he had time with me, and I always enjoyed 
my time with my father. It was great. I loved it. Watched Laker basketball, and, and we were terrible then uh, in that time, but we still loved to watch basketball and do those things. And I was looking forward to a really fun uh, weekend. I was looking forward for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I got there on Thursday and Thursday night. Uh, I said goodnight to my dad, and then uh, Friday morning, I never saw him. And then I got to Friday at lunchtime, and my dad never skipped a meal, so I thought that was weird he wasn't there. And then Friday dinner passed, and Nothing, and then Friday night gets there, and the sheriff knocks at our door, right? A knock that I will hear for the rest of my life, will echo in my mind for the rest of my life. And, and the sheriff comes up, and he explains that my dad, um, of course, all these details I didn't get till fully later. My dad was at a party and made some bad choices, was with some friends who are not friends, made some bad choices with him, and and he died of a heroin overdose when I was 12 years old. And that moment was a watershed moment in my life, a moment where I tipped from being a very peaceful, calm, and uh, kind, I would say, boy, <laughs> uh, to a very angry, um, even violent uh, person. And I just said that God stands behind all events, that God's control is not diminished when there's pain. So we have to say, in that moment, did God lose control? Absolutely not. Subtracting the greatness of God does not solve the problem. And in fact, weakening God is not going to help us at all. Because who's going to deliver us from the pain? If he's too weak to stop it, how can he ever give us victory over it? The greatness of God is not diminished when my dad overdosed, as the greatness of God is not diminished when there's pain in your life. But how do we digest that, though? Okay, it's not solved by subtraction. We don't subtract the greatness of God. Then how do you handle that? Let me tell you how I believe God, through his word, has guided my heart in dealing with that grief. There have been times I want to subtract but I know in the scriptures I can't do that. I can't read the scriptures fairly and do that. I can't do that. And you can't do that either. And I don't think you want to do that. We have to add something. Yes, God is great. God is good. There is pain. There's a helpful ingredient we must see. This is what we add. The problem of pain is, not, is solved by addition, not subtraction. What do we add? It's very simple. God had a good goal. God is great, God is good, there is pain, yet God has a good goal. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is this, it's, it's, it's very simple. God had a goal in setting up this whole system. What did God do in the very beginning? God created us. God created human beings. And when God created human beings, this was a good thing. It was a good goal of something that we should say that is good. In fact, God says it's good. If you ever read the first part of Genesis, you'll see over and over again, you'll read through Genesis 1, and it's just repeated over and over and over again. In fact, seven times in the first chapter of the book of Genesis, you see good, 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 good. God creates an aardvark, good. God creates a rhinoceros, good. God creates Chick-fil-A in the beginning, not in day seven, though, because they're closed then. So, right, he does all that. And he creates it and calls it good. Good, 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 good. He creates man. He calls it good. And then the whole thing he looks at, it, when the whole tapestry of creation is fully completed, he says, that's very good. God had a good goal, and that's to create humans. 
Now, notice what God did not do. God did not create superhumans. What do I mean by that? Right, scripturally speaking, we could say God did not create glorified people in a glorified place. God didn't just create us all in heaven. In heaven, we're going to be free. Our wills will be working. Our choices will be working. But there's no possibility of sin. We have no ability to sin. God could have created that. Glorified people in a glorified place. Superhumans. That would be a great goal. But God's goal was first to make good people in a good place. And those good people in that good place could make a choice. And in that choice, they could sin. And that was a good goal. But what happened is we fell. That good goal went bad. God gave us choice and we sinned. Now, here, here's, here's the point here that we, we can't miss in the scriptures. As we sin, we often think of it as an action. Something we do kind of outside of ourselves, and it doesn't affect us in here. and doesn't really affect anybody in the vicinity. That is not how sin is talked about in the scriptures. Sin is pollution. Let me show you this from Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Just listen to the language here as Paul is describing sin. He said, verse 12 of Romans chapter 5, Therefore sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men. Do you notice that? It's like the pollution of sin is viral. It's like the most contagious of diseases. That, that, that really all of our pain is us choking on the pollution of our own sin. That we plunge this world, this good world with good people, had an opportunity to make a choice, and in making that choice, they sinned, and that spoiled everything. All of our pain is connected to sin. Even natural, or, or what you call... Uh, um, uh, not crimes against us, but even natural pain, and meaning like when nature goes awry, when there's viruses or hurricanes or whatever. Right? This is how, how pervasive sin is in its pollution. Look at Romans 8, just three chapters after what we read. Romans 8, verse 20 says this, For the creation, it's everything, was subjected to futility, meaning it's not working. It's, it's futile. It doesn't accomplish its aim. It's missing not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation, I'm in verse 21, itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see that language there? All of this doesn't work. Sin pollutes pervasively us, those around us, and everything around us. All of our pain is connected to sin. Now, stop here. This is what you don't want to do. Right? What you don't want to do is say that all of our pain is connected to a sin. You don't want to do that. There are times in the scriptures where we do see people experience a specific pain because of a specific sin. But that's not how generally the scriptures speak about pain. They speak about pain as a general consequence all pain is not because of a sin, but because of sin. Let me show you this in the teaching of Jesus. How Jesus is going to talk about pain connected to sin, but he's not going to make the connection that says, if you do this, if you lied on your tax return, you're going to get this. Don't think of it that way. All right, look at this from the teaching of Jesus in Luke chapter 13. 
very interesting comment that Jesus is going to make here. So I want to take some time as we walk through this together. There are some, I'm in verse 1, there were some present at that time, at that very time, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. Okay, at first we're a little lost. Right? We jump into this verse, what's happening here? Basically, this crowd is telling Jesus about a, a crime against the Jewish people. From what we could tell, and it's hard to tell from all the details, but from what we could tell, it looks like what happened is a Roman authority by the name of Pilate came in and killed people who were probably uh, uh, making sacrifices on Passover, uh, uh, a Jewish holiday, one of the, the highest of all holidays, uh, their holy days. And what happened is he came in there and slaughtered them. So we're talking about a crime uh, against these people, an atrocity, right? That's what we're talking about. Now look at how Jesus enters in and responds to their, hey, did you know this, Jesus? Listen to this. And, and, and ask yourself this question. Is Jesus going to connect that pain, that slaughter, to a specific sin? See if that connection is made. Look with me. Verse 2. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? You see what Jesus did there? Very, very good question there from Jesus. Jesus is saying, do you think, there's, do you think they deserved this? That's what he's saying. Did they deserve this because of a specific sin? Right? Were they more sinful than the other Galileans in the region? Look at how Jesus responds. Verse 3. No, I tell you. What does Jesus do right there for us? He severs that connection. He says, no, don't look at this crime against them as something that they deserve because of a specific sin. Okay, I want to jump down. I want to look at, 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 at verse Four. We'll get to verse 3, but I want to jump down to verse 4 to prove the point again that it's all pain, not just crimes against us, but also natural catastrophes as well. Look at verse 4. It says, are those 18 whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? What is Jesus saying there? So there was this tower that fell. This is, you can call it a natural disaster. Maybe there was moisture in, in, in the mixture of the materials. Maybe wind blew. There was a storm, whatever. We don't know. But this tower fell. You can imagine this. You're walking the streets, and all of a sudden this tower falls, and it's a big tower. It says 18 people died. So this, it's, it's just a natural. Nobody pushed it over. It's just a natural catastrophe. So Jesus is saying, can we connect this natural disaster to a specific sin? Were these people worse offenders than the guy before them or the guy after them that didn't get hit by the tower? What does Jesus say? Verse 5, no, I tell you. Again, Jesus is severing the connection there. He's saying sin is pollution. It's, it's general or pain is pollution, right? It's this general connection to our sin. We're in a fallen world. Well, when these things happen to us, when we get sick or we break an arm or, 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 or we experience any kind of crime, we shouldn't sit there and say, I know this is because of some sin in me. That's not how the Bible speaks of pain and sin. Again, there are occasions in which that connection is true, but those are very rare. In general, Jesus gives us this kind of vantage point. But notice this, and this is the hard question to ask. And again, it's a question I'm going to ask of myself. 
I didn't read all of verse 3, and I didn't read all of verse 5. I said that we can easily say with pain, no, we, they don't deserve it because of a specific sin. But let's ask this question. Okay, this is the hard question. This is the point you don't want to turn off your television or turn off your iPad or whatever. The question is this. Do they deserve more than this? Do they deserve more than this? Has God robbed them of something? Does God owe them something? Is there a standard of obligation that God is required to give to them and he is shorting them on their paycheck? Did God owe them protection? Did God owe them protection from from Pilate? Did God owe them protection from this tower falling on them? Did God owe that to them? Look at how Jesus answers that. Verse 3, again, he said, no, I tell you. Now listen to this. But... Unless you repent, you all, everyone, will likewise perish. He does this again in verse 5. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, speaking of the tower that fell, you will all likewise perish. Here's what I think Jesus is doing here in this text as he responds to this crowd. Jesus is saying, how they ended was not because of a specific sin. But the fact that their life ended was because of sin. All of us are going to perish. All of us are going to end. This is what Jesus is saying here. I think what Jesus is doing for us here is he's clearly pointing out all of us are going to choke out on the pollution of pain. All of us are going to choke out because of our sin. And Jesus is saying, that's something I want you to flee from. So Jesus, in a sense, is saying, no, you, they didn't deserve this because of a specific sin, but they did not deserve more than this. Okay, let's get practical again. Right? I, I said earlier in the message that I'm not going to apply a principle to you that I would not apply to myself. Okay, so let's do that. All right, let's run back the kind of analogy there and, and do that. I think in great confidence in speaking from the scriptures, I can say with great confidence that I did not deserve to have my father overdose because of a sin, a specific sin in my life. I think that's fair. I, I think that's fair to do that. Now, here's the hard question, right? This is when it really hits home. And this has honestly taken me years to grapple with, and I would say is probably one of the things that still I struggle with. Let's ask this question. Did I deserve more than that? Was I robbed of something? Did God owe me more? Should he have given me 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years? He only gave me 12. He shorted me. Right? I could go to him and say, clearly I worked for more. Clearly I earned more. Here's the hard part. And you could do this. I have searched this book. And I cannot find a standard of obligation that God owes me some good things. Search it. Look for it. Find it. You can't find it. It's not there. Why? What you'll find is this. If you're really looking for what God owes you, if you're really looking for what God is obligated to give you, he's obligated to give you judgment. 
This is from the very beginning. For the very beginning, God said, Adam and Eve, I love you. You're in a good place. You're good people. But if you step outside of my will, you'll die. Don't do that. You will not find good outside of me. And Eve looks at the tree and says she saw something good, good to eat. I think it's interesting in that narrative because the first part of Genesis 1, like I said earlier, God is the one calling everything good. But that breaks in Genesis 3. There's a turn. Now Eve tries to call something good. She tries to be God. This is the root of our sin. We appraise things wrongly. We say, God, I don't like what you call that. I'm going to call it something else. And when we step outside what God calls good, that's the day we die. But notice Adam and Eve didn't die like that. They didn't die right away. There was a delay. They lived for a very long time. This is what God still does for us. That even when we suffer pain, I want you to see, and I think you should see, that the pain is sin's pollution. So even in the midst of all of this, even in the midst of this virus, even in the midst of everything, we should see it and be sad and say, this, this is what happens when we fall outside of God's will, right? The world breaks. Everything is futile. It's broken. So we should see the pollution of sin. But what else should we see? We could still see the grace and the gifts of God. Just like Adam and Eve, he said we would die, but we didn't, not for a long time. He delayed. I remember when I learned this, this was probably maybe a year after my dad's passing or near that, I made a New Year's resolution, maybe one of the only ones I've ever actually done, uh, completed. Uh, I decided because I can tell inside of me that I was, I was just, um, I think a fair word is just depressed and saddened and I struggled in my early parts of following Jesus with reconciling my father's death and God's greatness that I kept reading in this book. It was really hard for me to deal with that. And so I noticed that that was making, it was just making me sad and it was pulling me away from God. So I made this New Year's resolution. I'm probably about 14 at the time. And I said, God, here's what I'm going to do. Okay, I'm going to thank you a thousand times this year. That's what I'm going to do. If I thank you a thousand times, I feel like that's going to change my perspective a little bit. And so I got this counter, this metal counter from my grandfather. It clicked every time, and it had enough. It got to 999, so 999. So once it flipped over, I knew I was at a thousand. So I decided it was January, you know, first. And I said, okay, I'm going to go my first thankful walk. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go my first thankful walk. And, and so I did that. I went on my first thankful walk. And you know how long it took me to get to a thousand? It didn't take me a whole year. It took me like a few walks. I think I did it in one walk. I just went around, thank you. Man, God, thank you for that. Man, God, thank you for that. I saw my friends, thank you for that. I saw my family, God, thank you for that. Thank you for that. I saw my favorite uh, uh, burrito place in Ventura, uh, Spencer McKinsey's. It's amazing. Get the burrito Brooklyn style. It'll change your life, right? Not to make any advertisement, right? But I was just walking through Ventura, and I was clicking, 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 and I got to a 1,000 like that, and I realized, here's what I realized. is that God did not take something from me. God just stopped giving me a gift. I couldn't look at God and say, you owed me more. I couldn't look at God and say, you were obligated to give me more. I couldn't look at God and say, 
man, you really messed this up. I had to look at God and say, thank you for 12 years because I didn't deserve any of them. Every day after sin is grace. Every breath after sin is grace. Every heartbeat after sin is grace. I want to challenge you, and it may be hard to do this, but I want to challenge you to do a thankful walk. Now, I know you're thinking, Paul, I'm just going to be walking around my living room. (laughs) I totally get that. But here's what I think you're going to do. And I want you to do this today. I don't want you to wait till Monday. I don't want you to wait till Tuesday. I want you to, after you're done with this, I want you to do this. You may have some guests with you or, or different family members, but maybe do it as a family. Do it with kids. I want you to go on a thankful walk. And again, I know you're in your living room, but here's what's going to happen. Here's what I envision happening for you. You're going to start this walk and you're going to see family photos. You're going to see your wedding photos. You're going to see your family vacations. You're going to see pictures with friends. You're going to see the scuff marks on the wall from the grandkids. You're going to see all these little things, and I think you're going to be surprised at how quick you can get to 1,000. I really do. And honestly, I think it will change your perspective. We don't subtract to solve the problem of pain. We don't. We don't take away the greatness of God, the goodness of God. We don't take away pain. We solve this problem. We deal with this problem because of addition. God had a goal, a goal to make humans, and that's a good goal. Humans with choice, and that choice led to sin, and that sin has led to pain. But even amongst the pollution that pain brings and permeates everything, and that we feel so much right now, God is still gracious because we are getting more than we deserve. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, maybe you're watching this and you're thinking to yourself, this whole time, this whole crisis for you is just another reason to not believe in God. Look, I I get that. I understand that. I'll be honest, I I feel that a little bit too. But I want you to hear the words of Jesus when he speaks of these painful moments in Luke 13. Jesus takes these moments and he says, you will likewise perish unless you repent. What is he talking about there? Jesus is not just talking about death, about the heart not working, lungs not filling, the brain not being active. No, he's talking about more. He's talking about perishing, and that means being apart from God, apart from God forever. My prayer is that you would see, as everyone is scared about their health, about those around them, we're all kind of nudging up, if you will, to eternity. We're all getting on that precipice because of this pain, thinking about what's next. Can you hear the words of Jesus? But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus wants to save you from eternal pain. There are times, yes, that we pray and God does not save us from present pain. But Jesus is talking here, I want to save you from eternal pain. Not being with my Father in heaven. Not being with me in heaven. Being abandoned forever. I don't want that for you. God does not want that for you. I encourage you to chase after Jesus today. To take him as your Lord and Savior. 
to see that his death and resurrection is you. You have a means of forgiveness. You cannot earn it. You cannot work for it. It's a grace. You just got to receive it. And I pray that you would take it today. I'm going to close out our time together with a prayer. And in part of that prayer, I'm just going to offer up just a prayer for you. A prayer that you can say yourself. Now, my words aren't magical. Just saying them is going to mean nothing. But they're deeply meaningful if they come from your heart. So let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the mercy, for the grace that you extend to us. God, I thank you that even in our times of pain, when we question if you're good, when we question if you're great, God, you are still there. God, you show up, and even in the midst of our pain, we can see your grace. Even in the midst of our pain, we can see your gifts. God, I pray you be with everybody after this time is done, this video is ended. God, I pray you'd be with them on their thankful walks. God, I'm excited to see the stories that come out of that. The stories of how they walk their grandkids through different memories. Or maybe how the, the kids brought up memories that, that we had forgotten and said, do you remember this? Do you remember this? Do you remember this? And how we can all just kind of bask in the goodness of you. Even in the time when we're, we're, we're stuck and confined in our homes and we're worried. God, I pray you be with those walks. And God, I pray for those who are not yet following you. Christ, I pray for those who are not yet following you. Father, I pray. Father, I pray that you would call them out today. Father, I pray that they would hear your voice. They would not just hear my words, Father, but they would hear your words. That you would speak out even right now, even though it's just on a computer screen right now. Father, you can speak to them. And maybe you're listening to this and, and you can feel it. You know what I'm talking about. You know that God is calling you. You know that God is asking you to come back to him. Come enjoy him. Come have hope that can lift you out of this. Friend, that's what God is calling you to do. So if that's you in this room and you want to start following Jesus, if that's you on the other side of the screen, you want to start following Jesus today, you can pray a very simple prayer like this. It comes right from Scripture. The Bible says in Romans 10:9, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. So that's what we're going to pray. You can pray with me in the silence of your own heart or with someone next to you that's a follower of Christ, you can pray this prayer with them. You say something very simply like this. You say, Father, I see that I need, I need your forgiveness. I've sinned, I've fallen short. God, I've lied, I've lusted. I've committed crimes against you. Father, my regrets are big. <laughs> my shame is large. But Father, I also see that you provided in your son, your son, Jesus Christ. That through his death and resurrection, I can be forgiven. So Father, today, today I place my faith in Jesus Christ. That he died and rose again. Today I make him the Lord of my life. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. I want you to know, if you prayed that prayer, there is nobody more excited than me. Maybe the person in the room is excited too. And let's be honest, God's super excited. God's smiling right now. And what I hope, and I know we're in the midst of craziness right now, if you made that decision and you want to know what it means to start following Jesus Christ, you just send me an email. Uh, find me on the church website. Uh, send me an email. I, love, I would love to talk to you about following Jesus. There would 
be nothing that encourages me more than to see you follow Jesus. Church family, thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting together, hopefully someday soon, but we look forward to the grace of this platform where we can still meet together. Thank you, church family.